Well, we want to welcome you to the third season of the Someone to Tell It To podcast. It's so great to be with you today, and we're thrilled that you're, you're supporting us and listening. We want to thank everyone who's been part of our first two seasons. Now that we start a third, uh, we just warmly welcome you. We hope this season uh, continues to, to just grow better and better. Yeah, and we felt that airing this episode on Election Day was appropriate, considering the divisions that are so searingly evident in the United States. Today's episode is called The Reunited States of America. At a time when America is ripping apart at the seams, The Reunited States is a powerful and urgent documentary that follows the unsung heroes on the difficult journey of bringing our political and racial divides. Those heroes are Susan Bro, who lost her daughter, Heather Hare, when a car drove through a group of counter-protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia in August, 2017. David and Aaron Leverton, a Republican couple who traveled to all 50 states with their three kids in an RV to find out what divides us. Stephen Olakara, the founder of Millennial Action Project, a bipartisan coalition of 1,500 young lawmakers across the U.S., and Greg Orman, an independent politician who ran for governor of Kansas in 2018. Each of these bridge builders have realized that while our divides run deeper than they ever could have imagined, so does the love and hope to bring our country back together. Based on the book, The Reunited States of America, How to Bridge the Partisan Divide by Mark Gerzon, the film urges us to consider that everyone has a role to play in reuniting the country. We saw the documentary and both of us really liked it. We thought that it provided some wonderful insights and the stories of each of the people who uh, Tom listed here, who are part of the documentary, are, are powerful. What each of them did, the courage it took to do what they, what they did, to say what they say, to step out into the public square and to try to bridge divides and bring unity and truly to listen to one another, to understand doesn't mean they always agree, but at least to try to understand why other people think the way they do, vote the way they do, say what they say. And so we appreciated this very much. And we really do feel that airing this episode today on election day is an appropriate thing to do, considering the divisions that are so searingly evident in the United States. So we um, just want to thank everybody for being with us. And we're, we're grateful and we hope that you like this episode, that you find something, something valuable in it and that you can learn from what these, what we say would say is heroes, what they've done and um, how they're trying to show us uh, maybe a better way of living together, understanding one another and of listening. Obviously, Michael and I are the leaders of Someone to Tell It To. For those of you who aren't familiar with our work, we give people a safe space to be able to tell their stories, to be able to process what it is that is weighing heavy on their hearts and, and burdening that, them and their lives. One of the things we, we typically don't do as an organization is wade into the political arena as much. But 
with it being the, the day that it is and how relevant this is in, in our country and how much of a, an impact we hope we can have through this episode, we felt like it was an important thing to address today. And so uh, again, just with it being the day that it is, we do hope that you will see that the goal of this episode is to bring more hope, more inspiration, more positivity, more unity, and, uh, and just to hear some diverse perspectives. We felt that airing this episode on election day was appropriate, considering the divisions that are so searingly evident in the United States. And so with us today on the Someone to Tell It To podcast, the director of um, a film named Ben Reiki and Susan Bro, who lost her daughter, Heather Heyer, when a car drove through a group of counter protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia in August, 2017. And also with us is John Wood Jr., who's a national leader for Braver Angels. We wanna thank all of you for joining us. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. So first we're gonna uh, just talk about the documentary. And Susan, your part of the documentary is about your quest for social justice from the first anniversary of the Charlottesville rally up until your, your work with Congress and helping to pass a bipartisan Khalid Jabara Heather Heyer No Hate Act. And John, uh, you, uh, John is a national leader for Brave, Braver Angels, as we said. He is a former nominee for Congress. He's the former vice chair of the Republican Party of Los Angeles County, California. He's a musical, musical artist and a noted writer and speaker on subjects including racial and political reconciliation. So, um, wow, there's, there's a lot here. And Ben, as the director of the film, we'd like you first to talk about this film, why you made it, what motivated you, what inspired you to do it. Sure, thanks, Michael. I, uh, well, it's exciting first coming on election day that this will be, you know, we're speaking a week before election day, so there's still a lot of uh, unknowns ahead of us. Um, the film, The Reunited States, follows uh, four people on the journey of bridging our political and racial divides, and you know, hopefully in an effort of capturing those challenges and, and hopes and, and fears along the way, um, it, it can help provide a path and solutions and just hope for the rest of us that there is a movement to, to bridge our divisions and heal from them. Um, the film came about kind of from the realization that media has been part of the problem of polarization and has been used to divide us um, for you know various reasons of advertising incentives and you know engagement and clickbait just trying to keep us uh, paying attention. It's always danger, danger, danger. Um, but media can also be part of the solution of what brings us back together uh, if it's used in, in consciously in that way. And so, you know, I think there's a real lack of um, hope and. Uh, you know, the idea that there is a way through this is just not something that's being covered very regularly. And so the sense that we're divided is creating, and which we are in so many ways, but a lot of those divisions come from within us and it causes a lot of anxiety, um, which then further fuels the fire. And so the film is uh, not so much uh, taking a partisan point of view as it is looking within and saying, 
are we all part of the problem of polarization? And if so, can we be part of the solution? And it really is up to each of us on our, depending on our thoughts, words, and actions about the other side. Um, are we throwing fuel on the fire every time we post something online that we think is promoting a, a good cause or, or the right side of history, but are we actually demonizing an entire group of people? And so it's less about fixing government and more about fixing ourselves, the public. There's 330 million of us and we are all have a role to play in reuniting the country. Yeah, and on that note, Ben, one of the questions I know we wanted to ask you is about this quote that appears in the, the beginning of the trailer and, and also in the beginning of the film, where it's a quote from Thomas Jefferson, which reads, the greatest good we can do our country is to heal its party divisions and make them one people. This is obviously a big question, but did you feel like the documentary had the potential to help us heal America's party divisions and make us one people? Yeah, I, I mean, that quote, um, you know, obviously Jefferson, there, he was, it was living in a very different time. And, and you know, um, the reason we put it in there is to show that this is history repeats itself. I mean, this quote could have been written yesterday. And the fact that it has this kind of relevance and significance now almost gives a level of comfort that these challenges have been here since the very beginning of this country and that, you know, these realizations have, have been there all along. Um, we do hope that the film can be a very, a small part of the, the conversation around reconciliation and healing, especially in the weeks and months after the election, you know, after an election is there's always a need for healing and, and, and the country to find a way together because half the country's excited and the other half the country is, is, is grieving. And, and so we really wanted the film to provide a safe space to talk about some of these more challenging issues around race and political divisions that wouldn't involve screaming and shouting and shaming because that's not a way to invite people into the conversation. And whichever way this election goes, these divisions aren't going away. I mean, you know, just if you look over the past 20 years, even, you know, the pendulum swung from Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump. I mean, it's, it's getting more and more wild in its, in its swings. And so uh, for us, too, it's really about being conscious of no matter what happens moving forward, we need to include all of us in the conversations. We had just one last question. I'd like to know, so was there kind of like a moment where you you just knew, like, I have to do this film? Was there kind of... It was. It was, it was talking to Susan. Um, I, or when I saw Susan speak, actually, I'd, I'd had this idea um, to you know, cover stories and profile people that were journeying across the political divide and making efforts to, you know, bring us closer together. And I didn't know what that looked like. Um, it was actually first I'd read about Susan. Obviously, you know, the events in Charlottesville were, were traumatic and, and very much uh, a turning point in this country and, and seeing how far the divisions were spilling over into actual violence. Um, and I read something before I met her where she had a quote saying that we need to have difficult conversations to avoid further violence. And when I saw her speak, uh, she reinforced that idea. And I was just really struck by the notion that he was someone who'd suffered this tragedy, who had come out the other side with the voice of reason, saying we need to avoid further violence, where people like me or a lot of, a lot of us were just very passionate and angry and not knowing what to do with these emotions. 
And I felt so petty all of a sudden, like, what was I doing, you know, wrapped up in these emotions? And I mean, in a good way, Susan, you know, you became this voice of reason for a lot of us um, to be able to talk with such clarity and simplicity about these very difficult times. And so I approached her afterwards and I said, I don't know how or why, but I really want to be, uh, I really want to help get your story out there. What part of your story isn't being told? And she's, she was like, I'm glad you asked that. You know, most of the time, um, the media makes this about me and my grief. Like, I really want this to be about the issues that my daughter died for and the issues that are, have been there long before her and are gonna continue after her. Those are the real problems. And I said, well, that's great. Like, that, let's cover that. That's, that sounds like the part that needs to be covered. So Susan, we would love to bring you into the conversation now. You've said uh, that the only reason people pay attention, paid attention to your daughter's death was because she was white. You've said that I didn't ask for this platform, but since it's been given to me, I want to redirect the attention to the issues of racial inequality that she died for. This documentary is not only about me, it's about all the people, all the organizations that are working tirelessly to bridge our divides through difficult conversations. So would you tell us about yourself and about your story, about what led you to this place you are now in your life? Well, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of alarming to be thrust into a situation like this at any point in life, but especially as I was sort of looking to uh, retire in a few years and you know, thinking about cutting back in life. <laughs> Instead, I've found myself uh, busier than ever. Um, but it's, it's for a purpose. Heather was nobody on the world stage until she was killed. And suddenly, everybody was focused on her from around the world. I mean, even today, I'm scheduling interviews later this week with foreign press who um, have taken a renewed interest in the story in light of the elections. So in order to keep the story straight and not have her placed up in some godlike pedestal, I started speaking out and saying, wait a minute, <laughs> we got we to gotta stop and think about this. Uh, for one thing, if you get the high emotion, then you get an equally low crash. So her death would have been simply a sensationalist story and wasted. Heather would not have wanted that. I was not interested in that. If, if I'm going to be asked to talk, then I'm going to talk. I'm going to preach. <laughs> I'm going to teach. I'm a teacher uh, by former profession. And um, honestly, talking to people about racial justice in many ways to me feels like the same tone of reason that I used with fourth graders in talking about treating each other with compassion, being willing to sit next to a kid you've never sat next to before and maybe you'll like them and maybe you won't, but you'll learn to work together. And um, I, I just felt like this was a time where honestly for that brief moment I had a chance to either swing the public into vengeance or swing the public into rational action. And 
I'm not a vengeance person. I can't live that way. And I don't want to see other people live that way. I wanted to use whatever little bit of influence I had to uh, swing the country towards rational, positive action. I thought that the funeral would be the only time I would really have a chance to speak. And so I poured my heart into that speech and figured that was the end of it. And then people gradually approached me. And every so often, um, I would look at my husband and go, okay, well, that's the last of that. (laughs) And here we are going on four years now. And uh, yeah, it's not over. It's not over. And I will continue to use that platform for good as long as I have that platform. Yeah, Susan, for our listeners who have yet to see the documentary, if they simply see the trailer, they will notice the scene where you are on a street corner amidst protesters and police officers trying to, in Ben's words, be a bridge builder. Uh, What was that like for you? Could you describe that scene? Okay, so Ben, I'm going to bust your bubble a little here. That's editing. Yeah. (laughs) What was actually happening when I'm standing there, um, this, so as we know, the police did little to nothing at the first, at the actual event. So for the first anniversary, they, the pendulum swung far the opposite way. There were, there was a tank, there was armored personnel, uh, there were uh, police and heavy riot gear. You only had one checkpoint in and out of the um, event, uh, I mean, of the whole downtown mall. And Ben can tell you, we rode to the event with motorcycles and sirens circling us. It was very unnerving. So when we get there, tension is high. There is one group of public spectators that are heavily isolated from the other group of people and reporters who are allowed up on the actual side of 4th Street. Um, After I gave my speech, a lot of people came up and wanted to talk. And then something broke out down in the spectators. And to this day, I'm not positive what happened, but there was a skirmish. Everybody who had been with me ran down there. And I knew a fight was about to break out if, if the police got involved. The armored riot gear police start marching down the street towards the people who had run down to whatever was happening with the other police. And I thought, dear God in heaven, if they get down there and mix together, we're going to have it. I thought, they told me they're here to protect me. Let me see if I can stop this. So I kicked off my shoes and went out into the middle of the street barefoot. And as you see, I yelled, stop, and put my hands up. Fortunately, the riot gear police stopped and waited and what was down below calmed down in a second. But I I dread to think what would have happened had they made it down there. That was probably one of the first times I thought, let me try my, let me flex my muscle and see if I can make something not happen. And, And it, as you can see, my hands have done like this because that, that was, uh, 
very alarming experience. Two of my friends actually ran over and grabbed my arm and said, I'm afraid. And I said, then you need to get away from me because I'm going out into the middle of this one way or the other. And they did. They literally ran back to the wall and plastered themselves against the wall in fear. Um, yeah, that, that was uh, probably the first time I really flexed a muscle. Susan, um, just to add to that, just to give context, you know, as Susan talks about this a lot, um, you know, not only did, did Susan lose her daughter, but there were 30 people that were injured when the car drove through the crowd, plus hundreds of others in the riots that unfolded for three hours unchecked the year before. So the whole town has been traumatized by this. And those streets and that moment was so electric and so much anger uh, from, you know, people that felt they weren't protected by the police and this time. So it was it was a crucible like that moment. And so it, it did feel like any false move could have started something again. And so, you know, Susan was asked by the chief of police before that she got there, like, you know, hey, are there any words you can say to keep everyone calm? And, you know, it's a very charged time. And so people kind of view Susan, you know, as someone who like has a voice that people will listen to. And, and it was it was pretty powerful to see her in that moment, just instinctually use it to try and, you know, diffuse the tensions. It's an incredible story. And, and Susan, we're proud of you. Mm -hmm. Very proud of you for what you did. We can only imagine what that felt like and what kind of courage it took. To well, like I said, you can see my hands still now doing this. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So, John, speaking of stories, we know that you have a story as well. It's also incredible. And we'd like you to give us some background of, you know, of your life and your experiences and what led you today to uh, be leading Braver Angels. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting um, context in which to be sharing this, um, this story. Um, Susan's story comes from, a, comes from a place of loss that she's transformed into this incredible source of strength and inspiration for so many different people. Um, my story is, is very, is, is very different. So it's almost awkward to, to, to follow, but well, what I can say about myself is that I was born in the middle of cultural intersections that I guess, well, in some way you might suggest that when taken to their most extreme produce the sorts of events that, you know, ultimately, have led us to the point to where me and Susan and all of us here are, are having this, this conversation. Um, but I come from a, um, I guess my story starts uh, in my upbringing. I, I come from a household that is, uh, that is biracial and uh, from a family that is bipartisan. When I was running for Congress at the age of 26, I, I ran in a district in Los Angeles. And um, I, just to give you guys a bit of a sense of how I kind of started my political career, such as it is, um, uh, people would ask me, they'd say at the age of 26, what makes you uh, qualified to represent a district as diverse or complicated as the California 43rd, whether I was speaking to a, a liberal black democratic church in inner city Los Angeles or a or a white tea party gathering in South Bay, LA County, uh, my response would be about the same. I'd say, well, I come from a unique uh, 
family background, my mother is a liberal black Democrat from inner city Los Angeles. My father's a conservative white Republican from Tennessee. I grew up explaining my mother to my father, my father to my mother, and that's why I think I can represent all of you. So, you know, that was meant to capture it in a nutshell. Now, the, the truth is, is that my father didn't become a Republican until later in life. Uh, both my parents were Democrats when I was growing up. But my father was born in 1950. He was from the South and he was from a family that was very wealthy. My mother is from, you know, inner city Los Angeles and just from a strikingly different set of circumstances. And uh, my dad was always sort of the traditionalist uh, in our household. He raised me uh, talking about the importance of traditional American values and um, sort of uh, the, the glory years of of American, uh, of American uh, uh, culture, uh, the 1950s and the 1960s for him. Now my father's context, because he comes from the music industry, my grandfather owned a big record label in the 1950s. For my dad, the greatness of America back in the day had to do with the time where good music and folks from, from Pat Boone to Sam Cooke to Duke Ellington to Frank Sinatra were moving our culture forward in America. We had things that we could connect on on a cultural level that even against the backdrop of all the things that were wrong with American society gave us things that would allow, you know, Muhammad Ali and Charlton Heston to be able to sit down and have a conversation as friends because there were cultural meeting points. And so he raised me with kind of a make America great again sort of sort of narrative, this idea that we had to get back to it. Um, and, um, you know, it's very distinct kind of point of view from what most of us are raised with in a way. It wasn't your typical Christian conservative point of view uh, or your typical kind of, you know, uh, right-leaning kind of social narrative. And yet it overlapped with that so, so much that it gave me a way of understanding that side of the aisle later. Um, and so when I actually got into politics more officially, I grew up thinking of myself very much as liberal, very much as a Democrat. Um, I was a bit of an activist in high school. My first public speech I gave at a city council meeting in Culver City, California, where we passed a resolution opposing the Iraq war. Um, and uh, when George W. Bush was reelected in 2004, at the age of 17, and I was just, I was five days too young to vote myself in that election. At the age of 17, I wiped my hands of politics. I said, oh, it doesn't work. You know, my, my voice didn't matter. My activity didn't matter. I was, I was jaded and cynical, <laughs> you know, as a, as a senior in high school. And so I'm, I, um, I more or less, um, you know, I, I more or less uh, kind of tuned out of politics until um, uh, Barack Obama appeared on the national stage. And when I, when my attention was pulled to him and I heard what he was saying and I, I looked at his background and, you know, there are a lot of things about his sort of very different upbringing that actually resonated very much with my own story um, as a mixed race person growing up and, you know, not just ethnic, but kind of philosophical intersections. Um, I was inspired to get back involved. Um, but the thing that really inspired me about Barack Obama was that I felt that he was moving us in a direction that echoed with the idealism of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, 
Dr. King has always been my foremost sort of role model in American history. And so when, when Barack Obama talked about there not being a black, white, or Latino America, neither red states nor blue states, this post-racial, post-partisan kind of storyline really inspired me. And so to be a part of a movement of bringing Americans together across categories, um, I decided to really dedicate myself to studying what folks on the other side thought. So I went out of my way to listen to a lot more uh, talk radio, conservative talk radio, watch Fox News, started reading books I'd never read before, Atlas Shrugged, Wealth of Nations, the Bible uh, for, uh, for that matter. And, and some other things happened too. I got married around this time, this is about 2008, 2009 or so, moved to a military town. My wife was in the army looked up one day and realized that in seeking to empathize with folks on the other side, I discovered that I actually was more conservative than I realized in a lot of different dimensions. I experienced something of a shift in terms of my political uh, self-identification, but the thing that remained consistent with me was this desire to be a bridge for people um, across the racial lines and across the political lines. And so I wound up returning to Los Angeles after we moved to Colorado Springs, came back, started a family. I, uh, when I ran for Congress, I ran very much as a hope and change Republican. And I was more conservative on a lot of policy issues, but I, but I wanted to remain consistent with this movement of political empathy that I thought Barack Obama had very much begun to catalyze in, in 2008. And so that's sort of where my, start, my story um, takes off a little bit. And a few years later, you know, there are some very, uh, you know, sort of striking changes that took place within the Republican Party. Uh, the uh, phenomenon of Donald Trump and his movement within the GOP kind of emerged out of more or less out of nowhere and kind of was at odds with the type of politics that I was preaching. And so I stepped back from active involvement with the GOP. But even so, uh, I continued to apply my myself to the work of building space for empathy and communication across these divides. That brought me into contact with an organization called, at the time, Better Angels, founded shortly after the 2016 election. Uh, got involved with that organization. It specialized in, create, in creating local programs that allowed people in local communities to get together to empathize through marriage counseling techniques, basically, applying marriage uh, counseling to Republicans and Democrats, if you will. Um, it provided context for people to communicate and to collaborate in local communities. I stepped in, became something of a spokesperson for the organization, built out our, our, uh, our fledgling media network. And since then, we've developed programs and um, both uh, programs located on, located on campus for elected officials uh, rooted in local communities. Um, we've established workshops and training showing people how to communicate empathetically across the divide. We've uh, collected about 12,000 dues paid members across America, about 60 local chapters or so that are bipartisan where people work together on issues of concern in their own local community. And we've been covered uh, fairly extensively in the mainstream media. We've begun to build out an infrastructure for empathy in American life. And so that's my story and that's what brings me here to share a moment with all of you. Thank you. Yeah, and on that note, I think this next question, we'd just like to ask all of you, um, because I think it ties into empathy. What have you heard from people as you've listened to them? 
about what they say needs to be done to heal the divisions and acrimony in our culture. It's interesting. Uh, one of the core conflicts we have in this moment is the fact that we have, I think for people who want to build bridges across the divide, there is, there's become sort of a conflicting pair of impulses. And it occurred to me, even as I was telling my own story that I told, I started it with, in part with Barack Obama, giving that famous speech, the Democratic National Convention, where he sort of seeks to transcend the racial categories. And that spoke to me very much at the time. It still does in a deep and meaningful way. But part of what we recognize now is that, well, on the one hand, there's a desire to transcend race and category. On the other hand, there is a desire um, to sort of recognize the significance of race and the other differences in our identity as a means of more deeply appreciating the struggles that people carry with them in the context of American society so that we can develop uh, paths forward for institutions, for our community and for our nation that develop equitable outcomes as opposed to sort of glossing over the meaningful differences in people's stations in life uh, in a kind of a one size fits all cultural narrative. Uh, and so even in the context of trying to bridge the divides, there becomes something of division on this point. And um, I, um, I don't wanna take us too far down, down a rabbit hole, but I would just, I would just note that um, because I think that for those of us who take this work seriously, who want to move beyond platitudes and generic kind of observations about the need for us to come together, which is obviously true as a starting point, um, there needs to be some recognition of the different dynamics in play that make that complicated. And without saying much more about it here, for me, the starting point always has to be in goodwill. It has to reside in what Dr. King would have referred to as agape love. There has to be a willingness for us to love each other one enough on a broad level, not on just the, not on a level of affection or sentimentality, but in terms of deep-rooted goodwill, to be able to listen and hear the stories of people from across the spectrum of American life, so that our stories told through mutual empathy can inform our vision uh, for how society can reform in a way that honors all people. And so Ben and Susan, of course, um, but the documentary uh, that, that Ben has, uh, that, that ben has uh, created in his artistic uh, genius here, it, it provides a powerful narrative kind of starting point for precisely that kind of thing to happen. Because as opposed to just sort of speaking in, in glossy terms about how we need to come together, it shows the true depth and complexity of human experience that exists across the spectrum in a way that can show us that all of our different stories do participate in one larger story at the end of the day. And so if we can find each other in one another's stories and in one another's narratives, you know, we can find each other uh, in the solutions to our common problems as well. It starts with that empathy and it starts with goodwill and it starts uh, with sharing that story. Yeah, I'll just add, um, you know, briefly like the this is very personal for all of us, these divisions. They've cut across all aspects of society through our friendships, through our families, through our coworkers. So it, it, it has a lot of uh, personal anxiety and, and anger um, for us. I would say a couple of things that we've you know, sort of heard from people along the way. Like one is don't go into a conversation trying to change someone's mind. 
like go into it trying to understand how they arrived at their views. I call it going into interview mode when you start to feel yourself getting agitated and you just want to say, but you're wrong. This is the facts. I'm right. And don't you see the world from my point of view? Like, uh, I, uh, and this is where I think Braver Angels has, has done a good job of like, you know, talking about some of these hard skills, um, which is, okay, I'm going to take a breath and I'm going to just understand what the root cause of this perspective is, because that's where we have common grounds. Like we all go through the same struggles, have the same fears. A lot of this comes from fear. Um, I, I think you, one can make an argument that there's a fear of the future, which led to an outlier choice like Donald Trump was that people were scared of like where their future was going and being able to put food on the table. And, and so that's one thing is just go into it with an inquisitive mind and assume that people have good intentions below that they're not trying to destroy our country. The second is uh, if you're feeling that level of anger by something you're reading or something you're that's on social media or on the news, there's someone that is motivating that feeling for you to change your behavior, whether it's a political party, you know, I'm getting 50 emails a day saying like, man, I can't believe this. I'm outraged, like donate to us now and stuff. And, and it's like the anger comes up for a second. And then I'm like, wait a second, they're just trying to fundraise. They want me to like take action or in the media, you know, they're going to highlight the most extreme 10% of angry people all the time, because that's what gives us the sense of like, Oh my God, I got to keep paying attention and learn about this. So separating yourself from the matrix and saying, wait a second, am I eating out of someone's hand by like getting so angry at this moment? I'm not saying don't get angry, but just realize that there's a productive use of that. Um, and the third thing for me, which was really helpful was to separate, you know, the elected officials from the public. Like you may not like, you know, who's a president or you may love him. You may not like who is the senators, but the people that support them are their own entities and their own beings. Like to say, like, if you supported this guy, you're also part of the problem. Like to me, that's not a fair comparison because people have very complicated reasons for arriving at their views. And so I don't group 60 million people in with one person I disagree with. I think that's an unfair prejudice. And so for me, like those three distinctions have been sort of basic ones that took me a long time to come around to. And I think, it's a very emotional time. And I think the, the thing about making that makes us human is our ability to transcend our, our emotions and to, to use reason. And it's much harder to do that, but it's very necessary if we're gonna turn the corner and get, get ourselves out of this hole. I think a lot of people just want to have their situation heard and recognized. Um, you, you won't always be able to fix their situation, but they just really wanna be heard. And so the listening component is quite essential in, in all of this. Um, I often hear from people that one of the main reasons they voted for Donald Trump was they wanted to change things. They felt like their needs were not being met with the current administrations. Now, they may or may not have recognized all the needs and the reasons why those needs were not being uh, dealt with. But we, we have to understand the whys and the wherefores before we can move past them. And I think that, that that's what we're all saying is people want to be heard. People want to be understood. And they're saying they're not happy necessarily with what's happening um, and has happened for decades. And they're looking for changes. Um, 
I think the movie addresses that in a number of different ways. It shows ways that we can reach out to other people. It shows stories of other people. It shows um, possible alternatives to what we're currently doing as a country. Um, I think this movie, and and that's why I agreed to be part of it, is I, I trusted that Ben was going to give us a well-rounded uh, story here, and he has done so. Um, I, I just think that's the key takeaway from the film is that there are many different approaches to this and many different solutions here. We can't give up hope. We have the possibility to pull back together across these polarized lines um, and still get answers to our problems, still make the system bend to our will. We are the people. We are the republic. We are the ones who ultimately have the power. Hi, I'm Lindsay Drew, president of the Jessica Drew Sunshine Memorial Fund, a Hershey-based nonprofit organization founded in memory of my sister, Jessie. Our mission is to celebrate her beautiful life by providing educational scholarships to students and support to other nonprofit organizations who embody the principles by which she lived her life with compassion, empathy, and the belief that love was always the answer. We proudly support someone to tell it to, as their mission so closely reflects who Jessica was. A natural, compassionate listener at her core, she was someone everyone in her life could tell it to. We honor her and the gratitude we feel for having had the opportunity to know and love her by paying forward her gift of sunshine that she brought to all of us. We hope by doing so, we continue to shine her light and inspire others to do the same. To learn more, please visit jessiedrew.com. Each of you may not know it, uh, but you have each speak spoken to what we are about with someone to tell it to. Mm -hmm. um, perfectly. I mean, it's incredible. Every one of you said something, um, you know, in, in your remarks that were exactly what we say, what we talk about, what we write about, what we hope we are about every day that we that we go about this work. You know, we talked about empathy. My goodness, we, we speak of empathy all the time and, and try to help people to understand what that is and how important it is. Um, the, 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 the need to listen, to understand as opposed to going in to, to, to tell or to preach at or to, or to try to change someone's mind, but, but to listen, to understand them is, is where this starts. And then the fact that you mentioned that everyone wants to be heard, just simply wants and needs to be heard. That is exactly what we talk about too, that we, you know, so many of the problems that we have, we believe are because people are not allowed to be heard, that they know they're not heard, that people aren't listening to them. And, and we, just, we just simply need that as human beings. So uh, all of that speaks to us of hope, which you mentioned as well, that you know, when, when we allow others to be heard, when we try to understand, when we approach people with empathy, um, we believe there is hope. And that's how this healing can begin. So thanks. Thanks for sharing all of that. Your answers were perfect. 
Yeah, and I, I think uh, something else we've learned, even in just recent weeks, of uh, the need to spend time with people that you agree with as well. Uh, you know, just acknowledge the fact that at times we disagree, and it's not a matter of creating these factions. But I think it is important for us to have people around us that we have some commonalities with, and to to be able to voice maybe it is some frustration about you know, administrations and things like that. But then to be able to go back out, we would say into the world and to be a positive voice uh, of reason and connection. Because I think what we've found to be true is people project their, almost like on social media, we call it vomiting, you know, verbal vomiting, you know, your political perspectives and things like that. And it just fosters even more disconnection and disunity as opposed to maybe uh, having that outlet to be able to process with before you would post something, you know, uh, I think there's an, there's actually a meme out there of like, how about you filter twice before posting once or something like that, you know? Uh, and I think we've just found that to be really helpful for us is to have those, those people who, who do, do see the world the way that we do and to be able to process with them, but then to be able to go back out and, uh, to show that agape love, I think, John, that you talked about earlier. Yeah, um, I mean, I do think that there is, there's certainly comfort in being among people of like minds. And I think it's necessary to have that environment in part to allow us to decompress, to allow us to process, uh, to allow us to empathize with people who are feeling things in the way that we are feeling them, perhaps in the moment that we're feeling that way. But I do think that a major part of what we are called upon to do in this work is to, yes, build bridges to the other side, but to also equip those who might be our philosophical comrades, so to speak, with the type of you know, attitude and internal resources uh, to allow them to do the same, ultimately. Because, of course, the risk in residing in the in-group too much is that you get sort of sucked into a way of speaking or thinking that is so, you know, in-group focused that it quickly loses its grasp on the, you know, on the, on the depth of the humanity that exists and the differences that exist between other people. And it can be easier, easy for us to sort of marginalize, marginalize people on the outside when we're with folks of, of like mind. And yet um, there's a risk therefore in empathizing with people on the other side of the divide. And this goes a lot to why we wound up going from better angels to braver angels in, in the name of our organization. Because what we discovered and what some of us you know, already, knew, already knew is that in order to build bridges to the other side, you need more than just empathy. You need the courage, not just to withstand the suspicion and the hostility that may come from those who disagree with you, but to withstand the judgment and the hostility that may come from people who agree with you, who see your willingness to empathize with somebody of a strike of a different, even a threatening point of view as a sign of betrayal or of weakness or of selling out. And so part of what I uh, admire in Susan's um, posture and what I think is the great strength of her position is that Susan, uh, you're somebody who has a credibility that just cannot be challenged really in terms of you know, what you have experienced and, and what you have lost and sacrificed in, in bringing you to this, to this place in life. 
I think it gives you a moral authority, Susan, uh, to be able to hold us all to um, account a little bit in terms of being able to speak to folks who obviously share your social passions. And I too consider myself somebody who's very much committed to social justice, uh, but you're able to do that in a way that still allows you uh, to speak to the, to the fact that we necessarily have to recognize the humanity and folks on the other side of this without anybody ever being able to accuse you of being insufficiently committed, I think, to the things that you may believe in socially. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's just my, my read from the outside. And I think that people who are able to stand in that way uh, to reach towards the other side while setting an example for their own side, you know, that's the type of strength of moral strength of leadership uh, that I've found lacking um, in the mainstream kind of political leadership of our country. But that if you look into grassroots communities, you find people like Susan and the folks that are followed in, uh, in the reunited States uh, uh, documentary, um, you realize that that kind of leadership is out there across the country. And what's exciting is that we are finding each other now and it makes me believe that there's a movement brewing that really can tap into the better angels of our nature. And that's a, a very inspiring thing to see. Thank you. I, I struggle honestly with calling out injustice and then still being fair about it. Um, and sometimes I admonish my followers who are like, just execute a ball, just like, right. dude, seriously, get a grip. Um, it's challenging to call out injustice and still show compassion to the people who don't quite get it yet. Um, and that could be family members. Um, and that's honestly some of the hardest and we know with the holidays coming up. <laughs> I thought the CDC's recommendation for not having Thanksgiving might be good this year. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, <laughs> uh, we'll see how it goes. But uh, yeah, thank you, John, because that is the struggle. That is really the struggle. Uh, can I model what I'm preaching? And honestly, being a part of this film has held my feet to the fire because I, I do have a, a really sharp tongue sometimes. And <laughs> having to come on these panels and advocate for a better way makes me remind myself, calm it down, girl, calm it down. I can believe um, it. I think I first experienced that when we were filming and Susan was like, geez, Ben, are you going to film me eating a sandwich too? <laughs> he he no. was following me, man. <laughs> but, uh, I, it's a really good point, you know, that, that Susan and John bring up is uh, the challenges of this work. Like, I think it's easy to, to say, oh, bridge building is singing kumbaya or all we need to do is listen and it, it can sound so easy or so like trivial or trite but it's incredibly difficult work and it requires a great deal of patience and inward looking introspection and that's a that's a huge ask of people it's not easy I mean even as bridge builders we disagree all the time and and so <laughs> I think Knowing that it's election day today, you know, blood pressures are rising and people are anxious about the outcome. And I would just say in the end, like, this is something that we will get through. We're an incredibly dynamic country. We've been through like just really horrors in our history and we've always come out the other side stronger for it. So even though we're going through, I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic, the economy is in free fall, there's racial injustice, 
there's political chaos. Like this is a very testing time and, and we need to go easier on ourselves and, and just like understand that this is, you know, the crucible that we're in and there is a light at the end of the tunnel and we'll come out the other side stronger for it. But it's uh, it's not easy work. It's it's something that's required of us as citizens. Like, you know, one of my favorite quotes from the movie is, you know, we like to so easily claim I have rights as a citizen. But the flip side of that is that we also have responsibilities like this freedom isn't free. Like it requires us to rise to the occasion. And that's something that we hope the film can be a small part of is just this call to action. There's it's not red and blue or black and white. There's a third way, which is all of us need to work together to figure this out or this democracy experiment could fail. And that's that's on us. That's not on our elected officials only. May, may I please clarify? It's not that racial injustice is now existing. It's that we as white people are now paying attention to the fact that racial injustice has always existed. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's true. And it's actually a big distinction because you mentioned this earlier, like, you know, there is a there's always been a problem with race in this country it was founded on this inequality and those foundations are now cracks that we're dealing with i think for me another helpful distinction has been you know there is racism that's overt and blatant and like i don't like this group of people and then there's a lot of it that is unaware or ignorant or not i don't even want to use the word ignorant because that's sort of a shaming word but like a lack of exposure to these injustices in your own life. Like if you're in a community where you don't see it and you personally don't feel it in your lived experience, it's very hard to understand walking in the shoes of another lived experience where it's a daily struggle. And so for me, what I have tried to do is not to shout and shame people who might be on a different part of the journey of understanding inequality, but rather to try and use compassion and bring them into the conversation. And, and we hope that's what the film can do is provide a safe space to say, hey, you know, you hear about all these, like this unrest that's happening and you may not fully understand why, like here's some stories about, you know, people's personal experience that may help humanize it. And I think if we start to group everyone in and, and shame people and say, you know, you're racist because you don't understand racism, we lose them from the conversation. And that's, I mean, Frankly, when I was younger, there were things that I didn't understand about racial injustice. And I said some things I'm ashamed of now. So why would I try and shame someone who's earlier on the journey than where I used to be? Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Pensy. We are volunteers at Wonders Found Thrift Shop and proud sponsors of the Someone to Tell It To podcasts. Wonders Found is a totally volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We also support local missions and people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, mountcalvaryumc.org backslash wondersfound or stop in to see what wonders you will find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard. God bless. Now, you, you all have already begun to answer this, actually what's gonna be our last question. We're, we're, our time is, is, is drawing to the close. We could talk about this on and on and on. This is just fascinating. And, and we brought up so many great points. 
but because this is election day, what final words would you like to say to everyone who's listening on this day, but also for the days to come, no matter who wins the election for president of the United States, no matter who wins elections for other state and, and local, local elections, what would you like to say to people about how we can bridge divides, about what we can do, all of us, in order to be able to understand one another more? I would say the work does not change with an election. We still have a responsibility to listen to one another, see what the needs are, see that the needs are being met. Um, no single administration is ever going to be able to fix all of that. Uh, we can change trajectories. We can um, do U-turns. We can deal with it in any number of ways. But the truth is we still have to continue to deal with issues. Those issues are not solved simply by someone winning an election. That is a beginning or that is an ending, depending on how you feel about the election. But regardless, you still have work to do. And as a citizen, it is your right and your obligation to participate in your government. I would say that the choice between, the choice that we're confronted with today uh, is not so much a choice between Trump or Biden uh, as it is ultimately a choice between whether or not we're going to commit ourselves to the beloved community uh, or to the dissolution of American life. And um, that goes beyond your voice, that go beyond your vote, that goes to the type of person that you are committed to trying to be in the types of lives we are committed to trying to lead. Um, you know, Dr. King in talking about nonviolence said that the goal of nonviolence is not to defeat or humiliate the opponent, uh, but to win his friendship and understanding so that we may build the beloved community. He started with this idea that we need to love our enemies. And so that's that goodwill I talked about earlier. Uh, but Valerie Kaur, who's a civil rights uh, activist um, and author of the book, uh, See No Stranger, she, she defines um, the starting point for that kind of love, um, how it is we can love ourselves in a way that allows us to love others in a way that I think is useful. She says that something to the effect of uh, self-love is breathing through the fires of pain without letting it harden into hate. And so that is to acknowledge the fact that there is deep pain, you know, um, associated with our existence in this social and political landscape, the things that we experience. And there's nothing about loving your enemy that says that you should uh, therefore expect to not feel that pain. That pain is going to be a reality for us. But if we can take that pain, if we can breathe through it and still be able to return love uh, in response, that creates the cycle of grace, the cycle of understanding that can allow us to build a community of love and justice. And that's, that's the community we are, we are striving for. I love that. Breathe through the pain and don't let it harden in the hate. That's beautiful. Um, that very much speaks to our times. I, you know, this 
being election day and in the days to come and weeks to come, you know, we are going to be in an uncharted territory. Like we haven't, you know, this level of mail-in voting, um, counting the ballots, like how this, the winner won't be announced tonight. It'll take a few days. Um, that's something new for us. And it's going to cause a lot of anxiety for people. And to be honest, there may be some civil unrest as a result of the results one way or the other. But to me, the thing that gives me hope is that there are millions more people that want to avoid violence, that want to move past this division, that want to see our divisions healed. And that is, is something that just by the sheer numbers of it, we may see incidents on the news that, that make it seem like the country's going to chaos. But again, that's just the small percentage of the population and it's being amplified to the point of, you know, making it feel like things are falling apart. And so for me, I guess the, the biggest thing in this moment is just to realize that no matter what happens, we will get through this. This is a, a very trying and testing time. And that's the time that you learn and grow and become stronger. And so we're going to enter this period, you know, the idea that there's some civil war that's around the corner that we're going to divide into two, like, to me, that just doesn't, isn't an option. And, and it's also not geographically feasible because it's, we're all so intermixed and it's like city centers and rural areas are in every state, those divides, like there's no way that we can break apart. And there's no, and, and ultimately there's more people that want to see us work through this. And so I guess I, you know, maybe a term, a bumpy couple of weeks, but we're going to come out the other side you know, stronger for it. And, and that's what gives me hope is a lot of us want the same things. You know, we want safer communities. We want uh, health, you know, good healthcare. We want for our children, a, a better future. Uh, we just disagree on how to get there and what that looks like. And there's four or five third rail issues that we're extremely passionate about. But there's thousands of issues that we agree on and find common ground on, and they don't get as much coverage because they don't, they're not as, you know, sell as much advertising. And so I guess, you know, for each of us, just make that effort in, in, in your life with your personal, like where you are, with what you have and who you know, just those, those kind of attitude adjustments, because it's a fundamental shift. It's again, not easy work, but I think we have that strength within us. We just need to call on it now in this moment. I would like to remind the listeners too, we have been through a period before where the outcome of the election was uncertain. And we didn't resort to civil unrest. I know many people are pushing for that. Um, my husband and I own guns. And so he hears it from um, many people on the far right. Um, it's not required that we have civil unrest just because the outcome of an election is, is unknown. Um, just putting that out there. It's not mandatory. It really is not. Are you talking about the 2000 election? Uh, I don't remember what year it was. It was with Al Gore. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's how politically unaware I was before. I voted every time, but don't ask me what year anybody served term. I could, couldn't tell you. But I second Susan's statement very much. Yeah. And before you guys hop off here, how could our listeners find out more about the documentary? How could they learn more about each, each one of you? You can uh, request a screening of the film at reunitedstates.tv. We're doing our impact campaign now leading up to the release, um, which will happen in uh, early February, just after the inauguration. So the next three months, we're doing community screenings and screenings for organizations and companies and 
even if you want to just host a screening with, you know, a bunch of your neighbors, um, it's a great conversation piece to kind of explore some challenging issues in a more uh, loving space and, and productive space. Um, so reunitedstates.tv, and we link to all of our partner organizations there. John and Susan, I don't know if you want to um, give any details on how to find you guys too. I'm, I'm content to leave. If you want to reach me, talk to Ben uh, and he can hook you up with Heather Higher Foundation. I'd rather leave you with the thoughts that Ben gave than to do my own plug here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would encourage people to um, look into Braver Angels if you're interested in plugging into this sort of work directly. You can find out more about what we do at braverangels.org. A major focus of our organization is going to be on being a force for organizing to keep the peace in the aftermath of today's election and, um, you know, uh, in the hopes that that will not prove necessary, uh, but recognizing that one way or another, we'll need to work together for the sort of community that we want to see. So feel free to see what we're about. That was a powerful episode. We could have gone on for hours talking with each of them to hear more of their stories, understand what they, what they went through, and, and to hear more about the effect of what they're doing. They're speaking out, this documentary, and the work and the missions that they, they all are on. We, we really hope that in hearing them today, and spending this time listening, it will, it will cause reflection in each of you to, to want to do more, to, to take some action in the way, the way you live, we all live, in order to mend uh, you know, the brokenness and create better connection and unity. With it being election day, we encourage everyone who is listening, especially those of you here in the United States, you would be encouraged to get out today and vote, to encourage your friends and family to get out and vote. We do realize that our votes are not going to solve all of the problems that we're faced with in our world today, but we do believe that our votes do count and they do matter. One of the other action steps that we uh, wanted to encourage you to participate in is every year at Someone to Tell To, we have a annual gathering, an annual fundraiser to help support our work, to continue to provide the services to those who need a safe place to be able to tell and process their stories. This year, we transitioned, as many organizations have done, to a virtual event. And the event is going to occur starting Saturday, November 7th at 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Since the rise of COVID-19, we are especially excited about the challenge and the opportunity of doing a virtual event this year to engage our current supporters, as well as to broaden our scope to newer audiences outside of central Pennsylvania. This year's event is free of charge to all who tune in this year's program will address the current state in which we are all living, especially the losses and disconnection we've all experienced in 2020 and how we can begin to heal from them. Not only will it premiere on YouTube on November 7th, but it will continue to be available for viewing at your convenience for several weeks following. We hope you're able to join us and our special guests. Our special guests at this year's virtual annual gathering 
are going to include people to whom someone to tell it to has listened, and we'll hear some of their stories. Also, we'll hear we'll hear uh, testimonies from organizations and people whom we've uh, done training for and listening to their organizations, to their to the, you know to other nonprofits, businesses. They'll they'll speak to what that has meant to them. We will also have six um, short segments of remembering some podcast guests who we've interviewed over the last uh, year. Dr. June Lay Lee of Harvard University, Dr. Mary Frances Berry of the University of Pennsylvania, Jane Adshead Grant from London, England, Eric Zimmer uh, from Columbus, Ohio, Casley Killam from San Francisco, California, and our own board member, Connor Donnan. Uh, from Hershey, Pennsylvania, all of whom will be will share segments uh, from the work that they do and the conversations we had with them. We're also very pleased to have some special musicians from the, the Berklee College of Music in Boston and a local group from here in um, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where, where we're located. And then our special keynote guest for the annual gathering will be Jamia Wilson, who's the newly appointed Vice President and Executive Editor of Random House Publishers in New York City. We've interviewed her also earlier this year, and she's agreed to come back and, and share more from her perspective about the times that we're living in. And uh, we know that she will be inspiring in so many ways. So we look forward to you joining us for the annual gathering too. So once again, thank you for being with us today. And we look forward to the next time until we listen again. <laughs>